Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, and I'm here with my two usual co-hosts, Amy Bird, the housewife theologian, and Todd Pruitt, pastor of a PCA church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And we're going to interview somebody today uh, who you may not have heard of, but I'm pretty sure that the surname will be very, very familiar to many of our listeners. Uh, any of you who are into either the, the prosperity doctrine or Nehru jackets <laughs> will almost certainly have heard of the name Benny Hinn. Uh, Benny Hinn is one of the preeminent advocates of what's called the prosperity gospel. Uh, He's an extremely famous uh, evangelist for that gospel across the globe. And uh, today we're going to be interviewing uh, his nephew, Costi Hinn, who grew up very much in the prosperity gospel environment, very much in in the sort of shadow of his uncle and who yet has come to realize that the prosperity gospel at at best sells the true gospel very short, at worst and quite often is simply an anti-gospel and has come to uh, evangelical convictions relative to the nature of the Bible's message and what human beings are to do in relation to that. So welcome to the show, Costi. It's a real privilege and and something of a surprising delight to have you with Mm -hmm. us. Thankful to be here. Appreciate you. Perhaps you could start by, let me put this in a really tactless way, but how how weird was your upbringing growing up in the the kind of the Benny Hinn world? It must be fascinating, I, I would imagine. Yeah, weird, weird for you, but normal for me. So... Uh, yeah, our our normal was uh, a celebrity lifestyle. We uh, flew on private planes um, unless we wanted mileage and to fly first class on on certain trips. But overall, um, flying on Gulfstream jets, and uh, you know where some people here in the states would shop at you know Kohl's or Ross or Nordstrom's Rack like normal places where you would just go get clothes um, or Target um, you know we would go to Versace St. John Prada and I mean even my undershirts were Versace that's a true story <laughs> wow. uh, so that was normal and when you bought a pair of shoes it was normal you wouldn't even blink if they were you know four five or six hundred dollars that would just be a normal shoe so uh you know watches limited edition jewelry um diamonds glitz glamour multiple homes they're all multi-million dollar homes oceanfront view and then at minimum driving vehicles like benz bentley maserati Um, my car of choice after I drove a Cadillac Escalade was a a big Hummer. I put some big rims on it and had TVs in the seat. (laughs) I I would drive it alone and I'd have the TVs on. I mean, it was just that flashy 
Yeah, uh, it's kind of laughing know. at your description. I, w- I want a slice of this line. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hey, and you can have it for the, the low price of your soul. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that's the, you know, we say that tongue in cheek. Yeah. But it, yeah. and, and seriously, though, if, if you sell your soul to this false version of the gospel, um, you really can tap into this. That's the danger. Yeah. It, it lures us in uh, to the... The, the deep, dark wants, and it taps into our greed. So life was like that. And then our friends would have been celebrities in the Christian world and outside the Christian world. So professional athletes who uh, saw us on television and wanted the anointing that mm-hmm. we promised on their life. So mm-hmm. um, I won't name all their names, but baseball players that wanted to throw harder and hit better mm-hmm. and more home runs and other business owners who wanted God to bless their large corporations, they would come privately for an audience and we would lay hands on them and pray for them and speak some prophetic word that the Lord's going to bless them. They would tear up. They would thank us, um, usually make some sort of donation and then go on their merry way. So I've been to sports games. I've been to the World Series, flown in for it. I won't tell you where or who, but I mean, the lifestyle was... uh, all linked to people thinking we had direct access to God. And if yeah. they hung around us, they could tap into that too. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, so how is it then? Obviously we understand that where you are now versus where you were as a result of God's kindness, his grace, his mercy. But what, what mm-hmm. means did he use to, to, to make such a stark change in your heart and in your mind? Well, I'll, I'm a preacher, so I'm going to give you a three-point sermon in about three minutes or less. Um, but I, I boil it down to this. There was the coach, the girl, and the pastor, three people um, who the Lord used to put major cracks in the dam of my theology, so to speak. So I had questions growing up, like most people would. There, I am human, so naturally when we tell people everybody's going to get healed at one of these crusades, and not everyone does— that hits you as a kid. You yeah. go, uh, you know, I wonder why. And then when you ask questions, you're told, hey, you know, God can change his mind or sometimes people don't believe or the people had a lack of faith or they didn't give enough. They were hard hearted. There must have been negative people praying against us tonight. Yeah. All these excuses, these mystical reasons why what we said was fine, but the problem was with the people. So those things would happen and I would have questions. And those were deep moments of thought for me, but quickly pushed aside because my father, my uncle, whoever, any family member or anointed leader in the family would always remind us, don't question God. Don't put God in a box. That would be something where if if things change or if there were weird things that didn't seem to add up, um, you can't put God in a box. And then another one, which was very good as a gag order was don't touch the Lord's anointed or touch not the Lord's anointed Mm -hmm. and pulling from those old Testament uh, principles in which David or uh, the people were commanded, don't kill a prophet or or King in the monarchical lineage of Israel. So we took that and applied it to ourselves and said, you can't even talk or question. I talk about or question a leader. So that I'll lay the groundwork by saying that. And then into the, you know, the main point, 
Um, I go and play baseball at Dallas Baptist University. Um, I wanted to play baseball at a high level. I was fortunate and thankful to get to go play Division One there. And my coach was, and he's still there, a, a disciple-making man who began to leak in the gospel mm. truths. We were part of Bible studies, and that's normal at a Christian university. And so he starts talking one day when a Yankee scouts in the a New York Yankee scout came to see a few of our players that were big draft picks and they were, they had their eyes on them. So this scout sits down during a scrimmage one afternoon and everybody's nervous because if you play well, while a scout's there to see another player, you can get attention and get picked up too. So coach calls us all up and says, Hey, you all need to relax. And a bunch of college guys worried about the future. And he says, you know, God is sovereign guys. I've told you this before. Don't worry about scouts. Don't worry about the future. Just go play the game today and have fun. God is sovereign. Proverbs 21.1 says, the heart of a king is like channels in uh, channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God controls kings, scouts. He is in charge. He's sovereign. So just go out and have fun. Don't try to control everything. And I remember sitting there thinking, that is really weird. <laughs> I, I'm in control. My faith is in control. I, if I want something, I just claim it. And coach was a nice Baptist who I was always taught were, they were, you guys teach a solid word, but you're all are, you all are dead. You know, you're the dead churches. You don't have the spirit and you don't have real power. We do. So I'm sitting there as a cocky, you know, 20 something year old kid in college thinking, I've got a $10,000 limited edition Breitling watch in my locker. I got a Hummer out there in the parking lot. You know, I know a little something about faith. You might think God's in control, but I've got the formula. Mm. I'm in control. And so I viewed God as the puppet and me as the puppet master. So, but if you hold on to that sovereignty, truth bomb, if you will, um, it comes back. To, to explode in my life. And I'll, I'll try to be brief. And I know you guys probably want to ask more questions. I'll get to the point here. Um, I meet a girl, Christine, after I graduate college and back in California, she's nothing like our family. I drive a Hummer. She drives a Yaris. Uh, <laughs> I have a family that flies on private planes. Her parents are blue collar, hardworking people. Her mom, my mother-in-law is a school teacher and uh, for special needs kids. And my father-in-law is an iron worker. So you couldn't get more normal um, and down to earth. So she's that. I'm the opposite. I meet her and my parents and family are not thrilled about her. And people start prophesying, she's not my wife. She's going to ruin my anointing. And I'm supposed to be next in line because I'm the oldest hen in the next generation. So they're all saying, I'm going to get the double portion. The mantle of my uncle is going to mm -hmm. fall on me. It's all very mystical. And, and so they're worried. They try to fix her <laughs> cliff note version. She's broken. <clears throat> so they're, you know, the first question, is she spirit filled? I said, well, yeah, of course she's spirit filled. He said, oh, okay. Does she speak in tongues? I said, well, oh, don't start with all that. You know, <laughs> and my family's going, she's not spirit filled. If she doesn't speak in tongues, she's probably not even saved. So she's got to get the anointing and, and come under our ministry and then she'll be fit to marry you. So I'm thinking, oh boy, here we go. So we take her to Uncle Benny's service, my dad's service. We take her to some other conference and everyone's laying hands on her, trying to get this girl to speak in tongues and bless her heart. 
she's raising her little hands. <laughs> At one point they prayed for her and I look and I'm wondering, is she going to fall? Like, is she going to buy into this? God, please let her figure it out so we can get married. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't have sound doctrine yet. I'm just hoping everyone will get along. Yeah. So one time she falls, you know, she's in these little high heels and she just tips over and the ushers catch her. And I'm thinking like, man, she got it. Now I can marry her. And after I said, what did you feel? She's like, that was the weirdest, darkest feeling I've ever felt in my life. That was just creepy. I felt because I thought I had to. And I was going, oh boy. So that's all happening. And then eventually, you know, without getting into too many more details, some spiritual abuse, you've got that stuff weighing on her. And we go to the Bible to find answers about tongues. And we stumble upon 1 Corinthians 12, 30, where Paul is being rhetorical in a sense, saying, not all do they, not all do they. And there in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 12, he's referring to not all are going to do all these gifts. You don't have to. Everyone's not going to heal. Everybody's not going to speak in tongues. Everyone's not going to interpret, et cetera. So I remember we looked at each other and said, I think we're off the hook and tears are in her eyes and tears are in my eyes. So that was the beginning of the dominoes falling and the, yeah. the split off from my family. We started thinking, what else might be wrong here? And then fast forward, I end up at a church in California. It's a, we're, we were a wild attractional church plant. We were growing fast and doing it however it would work to get people in the door. And one day pastoral team gets together and uh, the lead pastor's tired of playing the game. He goes, we're going to go through a book of the Bible. I'm tired of having to sell people on why to come next week and doing louder music and more shows and more big guest speakers. We're just going to preach the Bible. <laughs> so we go through the book like of John that. and everyone thinks we're nuts. And <laughs> That's crazy talk. He goes, okay, Costi, you're up. I'm going to be away. John 5, 1 through 17. That's where we are this week. So you're up or in a couple of weeks, you're up. And he, he jokingly goes, here's a commentary. Um, and he throws it on my desk. I still remember it. Burgundy commentary hits the desk and he goes, this thing will help. This will help keep the train on the tracks in your study. <laughs> this guy's a good guy, you know, I guess for like, for, you know, Bible study and stuff. I'm like, okay. I look at the commentary. It never clicks that it's a John MacArthur commentary. <laughs> and that's who my uncle once said he wants to to blow his head off with his Holy Spirit machine gun. I remember, I remember <laughs> yes. that. Oh, yes. So I'm in study and I'm studying for a sermon. I'm a pastor at the time and our church is going through this major transformation. We just don't realize it yet. And I'm studying John 1 through, John 5, 1 through 17. It's the healing at the pool of Bethesda. This is a slam dunk for a hen kid. Healing. I got it. <laughs> this, you know, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to teach them all. And I start making observations as I had been taught. I had learned a little bit from Pastor Tony, is his name, Tony Wood. And he taught me a, a basic method we were going through, and it was called OICA, observation, interpretation, correlation, application. Just simple steps mm -hmm. that help you at least not, you know, fall down into the pit of, you know, some crazy uh, heretical teaching. Mm -hmm. It'll keep the train generally on the track. So I'm making observations of the text. And I see Jesus heals or he goes after one man in a multitude of sick people. And I'm, I remember thinking to myself, three things. That's really weird. We always used to say, you're going to heal everyone. Lord, why did you just pick one guy? Why didn't you just heal them all and get on with it? And then next, 
John recorded something that was very interesting. When Jesus says, arise, pick up your pallet and walk, the man immediately got up. John records right away, instant. And so I'm going, that's really interesting. And I remember thinking, no service, no music, no white jacket, mm-hmm. no anointing, no crowd, yeah. no delay, no process, no, hey, you know, Carl or Amy, you go on now and just keep having faith and believing. Don't get around any negative people or you'll lose that healing or it won't be complete. I thought, wow, Lord, right away. Okay, that's important. So I circle it. And then the real bomb comes where the man goes off. He's carrying his pallet. The Pharisees see him and they go, it's Sabbath. Don't you know? You can't work. Can't carry that. And the Pharisees, of course, loading all these extra burdens on people uh, historically where you couldn't even, you know, pick some grain out of a field with your hand. You couldn't kick your boot on the door if it had mud or you're making bricks. I mean, you know, all the silly things when you look historically, the Pharisees added. And of course, you, uh, a healed, crippled man cannot carry his bed. That's work. So they point him out. Who told you you could do that? And he says, the man who healed me. And then John records, he didn't know who Jesus was. And I remember thinking, what in the world? Mm. How did he get healed if he didn't know who Jesus was? How did he have enough faith to yeah. get healed if he didn't even know who Jesus was? How did he believe to get his healing? Mm-hmm. He, he didn't even know who Jesus was. That yeah. doesn't make any sense. So I'm going, okay, commentary time. I grab this thing and I'm reading through it. And in MacArthur fashion, he is teeing off on the sovereignty of God. He says, here is the sovereignty of Christ's healing ministry in action. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, oh my goodness, sovereignty. Full circle you're back in, to your coach. <laughs> <laughs> old coach, you're in control. I'm not. We can't turn your healing ministry into formulas and, and then guarantee anything. You literally, through compassion, love, and your sovereign power and authority, decided to heal one man and make a point through it. So at this point, you know, tears are welling up. I'm a little bit messed up in the head going, what have I been believing all this time? What have I been preaching? What was I the heir apparent to? And then I keep reading and I still have the commentary. It's literally on my shelf. I highlight this whole section and he says, therein lies the cruelest deception or cruelest lie of faith healers today that the people they fail to heal are guilty of negative confession, unbelief, not having enough faith. And he just goes off and I'm thinking, Oh my goodness, that's us. Yeah. We're that. So I start crying. I'm supposed to preach this thing like five days later, and I can't even, you know, stop crying over it. And the Lord takes hold of my heart. Scales fall from my eyes. I repented sitting there. I asked him to forgive me of my sins. I vowed to preach the true gospel. I vowed to study and apply myself fully to being a faithful preacher. So that moment happens. I go kick in the door of my teaching pastor's office and I'm like, everything I believe was a lie. I, I'm going to do something about this. We got to tell people this stuff is crazy. The truth is right here for all to see. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to like mm-hmm. a young pastor. And he just goes, Costi, sit down. <laughs> so I sit down and he goes, no, you're not. I said, what? I'm going to, I'm going to help. I'm going to do this. And he says, no, you're not. What do you want to be? I said, I want to be a pastor. He goes, well, what does a pastor do? I said, serves the church. He goes, that's right. And now that you realize all this, have you trained? I said, no. He said, all right. Have you studied? No. 
He said, so I'm thankful that you have come to this realization, but God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He's sovereign. If he chooses to use you, praise God. But until then, you need to focus just on being faithful. Don't try to change the world and do this and that. Just focus on being a faithful pastor. Mm -hmm. And so I basically got told to shut up, go back to my office, do my job and serve the church. (laughs) And for four years, I did and stayed silent and was discipled. I lost my title. They called me PIT, pastor in training. I felt like a pledge, you know, at a fraternity. (laughs) I was, uh, you know, the the low guy on the totem pole and went to seminary and started studying. And that is, sorry for the monologue, but the whole transformation in a nutshell, questioning to having the questions answered. It was a sovereign work of God, literally transforming my entire life. Yeah, your testimony, I mean, you kind of touch on what you talk about in the book and your testimony, but you go much deeper in the book and it's such a a page turner um, and a quick read in that way. But um, some things that struck me in just reading your testimony was one, just how the Holy Spirit works. He is so patient. He is so patient with us. And and he was so patient to reveal to reveal Christ to you in that way and to reveal the error that you grew up in and the patience that even your teaching pastor <laughs> had with you yeah. and, and other, your, your wife, the patience yep. that she had with you. Um, that was amazing. And another thing that really stood out to me that I wanted to share was just how well you speak of your family, mm. even as you're boldly confronting this false teaching. Mm. Um, you know, that, that, takes, that takes the Holy Spirit to be able to, to handle that spirit and truth going on there. And then how you listen to your wife. I really appreciated the way that you articulated the trouble that she mm. was going through, you know, because she loves you but also, you know, her, her love of the Lord and her refusal to embrace error. Yeah. Um, and how you listened to that. I thought maybe you would want to talk a little bit about maybe one of those three things, and, and particularly probably the patience part uh, yeah. of the Holy Spirit. That is, um, first, why I, th- I think or I have a conviction that who disciples us and the people we get around and sit under or with in, in, in our, the, Christ, the Christian life is so critical because we're being shaped and influenced. You know, Jesus said a lot about the pupil and the teacher. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, we, we become a lot like those that we get around. Mm-hmm. And I am so thankful that my pastor was and is. He's still my dearest friend. I called him just the other day. I just got sent out from California. I just left that church after seven years. Um, I got commissioned out. I'm, we're living in Arizona now. So the it's like 120 out here. Uh, we're, we're, we're in the desert and we got commissioned out and I'm just in the first few weeks. Who do I call? I call him. Mm-hmm. And he is a patient, godly man who went through his own process yeah, as right. well. Yeah. But if it wasn't for his influence and it wasn't for his patience, I, I wouldn't have been shaped that way. And yet he's bold as a lion. And so mm-hmm. I learned a principle, which is we are firm in our theology. We are flexible with people. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to compromise on what we believe. Mm-hmm. We're not going to adjust. We're not going to tone it down. We're not going to mitigate. But we're also going to understand that God has been patient with us. 
many people have been flexible and enduring and long-suffering with our ridiculous beliefs and our methodologies and our sin and patient and kind. And so we can be that way too. And never means that we compromise or we're going to pull back on the truth. So that is the result of people who have poured into me. I am not, I did not make myself one of the, the publishers weekly. God bless them. I know they're a secular review thing, but they wrote a review and it says, you know, Hin rebuilds himself and his theology and his <laughs> belief. And I'm thinking, you know, that's the way the world sees it as I reinvented myself right. and I reemerged and now I'm whatever in the Christian world. That has nothing to do with me. I didn't rebuild anything. I was shown the kindness of God. And then the church came around me and pastors gave up hours and hours and days and days on end. I have to make the joke. I'm dead serious though, that I owe Tony's wife lots of gift (laughs) cards for them to go on date nights because I made them late for dinner, probably so many times sitting in his office, uh, questioning and and tearing up and, and frustrated and going, man, how, how could they do this? And we got to do this. And why are churches like this? And he would say, absolutely. Yes. And amen. However, and then he would teach me leadership principles. Mm-hmm. So that is the patience and goodness of God through him. And then my wife, yeah. When Proverbs talks about the crown jewel of a husband, the excellent wife who can find my wife will be the first to, to jump in and go, no, 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 no. Don't put me on a pedestal. I'm not perfect. You know, she, she doesn't like that at all. And so I'm not, but I am saying when we talk about women being a gift from the Lord to a man, I was given a gift. Mm -hmm. I didn't deserve her. I didn't even, I didn't, I don't even think I wanted her, even though she was beautiful. Of course I wanted, but deep down who wants, who wants a wife that's going to challenge everything and you got (laughs) to, your pride gets tested. I mean, that stuff is tough. So I'm thankful she was patient. God gave me a wife that, yeah, I wanted certainly, but more than anything, the wife I needed. Mm. And she is uh, a calm, calculated woman who is emotionally stable and I'm thankful for her. Mm. So people did that and God used them. So yeah, you're absolutely right, Amy. And I'm, I want to do a better job being what others have been for me. Costi, I'm going to ask you a question now, which you may not want to answer, in which case we can just edit it out. <laughs> but um, do you think that the the people who lead the prosperity gospel movement are they do they genuinely believe their message, or mm. are they cynical hucksters? Now that may be too personal yeah. a question, I know, because it no, touches no, no. on uh, close loved ones, of course. But w- what's your take as somebody who's seen this from the inside? Is it a scam, or is it? these people genuinely and passionately believe something that's fundamentally wrong. I will answer that in, in two ways, biblical. So I'll use a scripture and then I'll use a personal experience and, and I don't mind sharing openly at all with you guys. Number one, Paul says to Timothy, second is Timothy uh, three thirteen. He says in the last days, evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Hmm. I, when I think of that verse and I think of, uh, evil men and imposters. And I think of those who are introducing teaching that leads people away from Christ. They're exploiting people in their greed, like Second uh, Peter 2, 1 through 3, uh, talks about introducing that whole chapter on false teachers. I think of my life and what I was a part of. I do think of my family. That's, while it's painful, it is the reality. And 
it was both and it is both. There were times where we flat out did things that were not right. They were dishonest. There were times, uh, I, I put a couple of these in the book. I didn't put a ton of them because I wasn't trying to just, you know, make a 300 page hammer drop on everyone and expose every little thing we did. I just tried to put a few highlights and there were times where we took offerings and, and we manipulated to get those and they were big, big offerings. And then we, we kind of split the, the loot, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's wrong. Even when you're in it, you're, you, you know, it just like a criminal knows he's committing a crime, yeah. but you're caught up, you're pulled in the blinders are on. And so what do you do? You justify it. And mm-hmm. we used to justify it saying, well, you know, we're, we're anointed and, and we're doing a service. We're the middleman. We're offering healing, anointing, power, God's favor. Everything he's given to us, we're offering it to them. We're like the Old Testament priest. We're simply a mediator. And we're offering this to people who are hopeless and giving them hope. So we deserve to to experience the blessings of God because we are being a blessing to his people. We would actually talk about that. So uh, that would be one way that we would deceive ourselves and convince ourselves and justify. Conversely, there were many times where we did things that were completely wrong and then there would be apologies. And my uncle multiple times has given public statements of remorse. I believe this would just be personal. We can talk more about remorse and repentance, but I believe those are statements of remorse. They're not repentance because the behavior doesn't change. The heart doesn't change. Um, I do see in the Bible, Zacchaeus totally turns upside down, goes the other way. Yeah. You, you have instances, Peter weeping bitterly over his sin and being restored. And then you've got Judas, who certainly is remorseful. He obviously feels bad. He throws the money back. He doesn't want it. He knows that he's betrayed innocent blood. And then he kind of goes off in despair and hangs himself. Um, doesn't really repent. We don't see a, a turnaround. We just see remorse and yeah. turmoil. Despair, and yeah. I can honestly say that I, I'll speak for myself, I felt that remorse for a, uh, for many t- situations we were in many times, but I never came to a place of true repentance. And now that I have, I know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. And you go the other way and you lose everything and you don't care and you give the stuff away and you sell it all off and you give the money away and you run from it and then you have nothing, but you have everything. Mm-hmm. And you suddenly are joyful and happy and you can't even explain why except to say, I sleep great at night and I don't have this burden. I'm no longer living a lie. That feels really good because Mm -hmm. it's the way that we ought to live as believers. Now that I have felt that, and I don't say that in a self-righteous way, I I join you guys and all the other believers who have felt that same grace pour over them in saying, that's what real repentance is. So Mm -hmm. I want that for my family many have not come to that place. So that's a, a longer answer to that. But I would say it's both answer. self-deceived and then deceiving others. And then lastly, psychologists will tell you this. You tell the same lie enough times, you start to believe it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And we, we definitely were there. Yeah. The only thing I would add to that is in my experience of Christian organizations, those, those pathologies are not a monopoly of false teachers i think those who have the truth can also end up behaving in despicable ways because hey they're on a mission from god yeah uh, that's right so i think that we all need to be very you know it'd be easy to say you know 
I thank God I'm not like this Benny Hinn guy over right. here. Yeah. Yep. Um, we, yeah. That's a very interesting Same capacity answer. to deceive ourselves, though. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, this book I want to highly recommend to our listeners, God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel, How the Truth Overwhelms a Life Built on Lies. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Kasti. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me on, and thank you for your ministries. Yes, and we're excited that we are going to be giving away a few copies of this book on our website, mortificationofspin.org. So if you want to enter to win the book published by Zondervan, um, you can go on over to the website and do that. And we also appreciate any donations toward the podcast. I don't know if you've noticed, we don't have advertisements on our podcast. So we appreciate any donations to help keep us going for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And this is Amy Bird. I look forward to talking to y'all next week. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's keep this short so none of us gets burned out. Please read the blog, please subscribe, please leave a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. I just texted a bunch of friends and I said, I'm literally speaking to Benny Hinn's nephew at the moment. <laughs> and I've got some exclamation marks flying back <laughs> on, my, on my phone. So, uh, our approach is very freewheeling. Uh, and also we're not live. So if you say anything that you feel you might get sued for, or you'd uh, <laughs> rather clarify, we can go back, we can edit it out. And we also try to keep it relatively lighthearted as well. So, thank uh, you. Thank you uh, for that. Because yeah. it's been interview after interview. And I'm sure everybody's really intense and they oh they, we don't do intense <laughs> and I, I love i love the questions we can get deep yeah but yeah. it's good to just talk with some yeah. some friends and, yeah. and have a good time